Mysterious Circumstances is an American Crimecast production. Remember, everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Hey everybody, this is Justin with Mysterious Circumstances Podcast. Uh, welcome to the show. Today we have a uh, pretty good mystery for you. It is entitled, uh, The Death of Abe Kid Twist Rellis, who was a gangster in the 1920s and 30s, uh, based out of Brooklyn, New York. There's a lot of, lot of facts, a lot of whodunits here. It could have been suicide, could have been an accident, could have been murder. Nobody really knows for sure, but everybody obviously has their really strong theories about what happened. Now, Abe Rellis was born uh, May 10th, 1906, in the Brownsville section of Brooklyn, New York. It is an extremely poverty, poverty-stricken section of New York, along with uh, the Ocean Hill section back at that time. Um, I'm not sure about today's financial abilities there. It could be better, it could be worse, who knows. Abrellis was not really, uh, how do you say, the smartest smartest guy in the bunch, even though he actually thought he was. He was an extremely violent man. Uh, he was a professional hitman. He was a contract killer. So with that, with that knowledge going forward, if you do have a problem with talking about lots of death, uh, you might want to skip this episode. Um, I assume that if you do have problems with talking about that kind of stuff, you're probably not going to be listening to the show. So, grew up running the streets of Brooklyn, New York with a couple buddies of his named Harry uh, Strauss, whose nickname was Pittsburgh Phil. Uh, not really sure how he got that nickname. It's not really relative to my case, but he was not from Pittsburgh, and his name was not Phil, but he was known as Harry Pittsburgh Phil Strauss. And uh, another childhood friend of his named uh, Martin Goldstein, who uh, whose nickname was Bugsy. These guys, uh, Abrellis actually dropped out of school right around the 8th grade. And uh, that's when his life of crime really started taking hold. Him and his friends started uh, running some rackets and, and other stuff like that in Brooklyn. Uh, they were running uh, extortion protection rackets. Uh, they were doing some stuff for the unions. What they would do was uh, they would work with the managers of the unions to intimidate workers. And then they would work with the workers to intimidate the uh, union officials. So they basically had the both the best of both worlds. Um, in later years, he ended up being the leader of the Brownsville Boys, which was a gang based in his neighborhood. Um which they actually worked very closely with the Ocean Hill Gang, which uh, was a group of Italian mobsters. I didn't mention before, Abrellis obviously was Jewish. He was born to uh, Austrian Austrian uh, Jewish immigrants. Um, his whole Brownsville Boys Gang were Jewish, and then the Ocean Hill Gang were um, all Italians. Now, these guys teamed up together... And they were the main driving force behind Murder Incorporated, 
which for those of you who do not know what Murder Incorporated is, I am extremely fascinated with the mafia here in America, uh, mainly New York. And Murder Incorporated was a group of independent uh, enforcers that worked pretty much for everybody that would pay them money. They worked out of a place called uh, Midnight Rose's Candy Store, which was a coffee and candy shop in uh, Brooklyn there. And it was actually open 24 hours a day. They would hang out in the back, wait for a phone call. When a contract came in, they would decide who was best suited for that job. And then they would kind of go from there and decide who would get the contract. The reason, part of the reason that the, uh, the Brownsville boys, who were the Jewish ones, teamed up with the Ocean Hill Gang, who was the Italians, was because there wouldn't be any kind of ethnic dispute about any kind of mafia hit. You know, it couldn't be a bunch of Italians say, hey, you know, it's these Jewish, you know, it's because we're Italian, blah, blah, blah. You know, back in that, back in that day, there was a little bit of friction, but for the most part, um, when Meyer Lansky and uh, Lucky Luciano forged their friendship, they pretty much put to rest um, a lot of stuff because it was profitable for everybody to get along. So that's pretty much what they did. Now, the Murder Incorporated was actually a part, they were the main driving enforcers for what was called the Syndicate. Now, some of you who are into the Mafia... Um, have heard about the commission, which the commission in New York was the leaders of the five families of New York all teamed together and would make decisions, you know, based on a vote. Now, the syndicate was more nationwide. It was better at that time for guys who were from out of town to do a hit because they could come in, leave. Nobody knew them. They had no personal relationship with anybody. It just seemed to work out a lot better that way. And uh, by the mid-1930s, uh, Abe Rellis and his gang and the uh, the Ocean Hill gang uh, were, you know, by, by we'll just say this, by the late 1930s, it is actually said that Murder Incorporated uh, collectively had killed more than a thousand people. That is an extreme number of people, obviously, it's pretty crazy. That's just phenomenal, to be honest with you. But, uh, like I said, the syndicate was more nationwide, so they literally went from New York, you know, Detroit, California. They were pretty much everywhere. Now, the leaders of Murder, Inc. were uh, Louis uh, Buckalter, also known as Lepke Buckalter. Um, he was the Jewish side, and then the Italian side was Albert Anastasia. Albert Anastasia is actually an extremely famous mobster from back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, he was an extremely brutal, brutal guy. He was uh, he would pretty much kill anybody, whether it be with a gun, knife, but he actually preferred to kill people with his bare hands. Uh, Albert Anastasia was the leader of the Italian side, and like I said, they had an Italian leader, they had a Jewish leader because that pretty much kept everybody from pulling the ethnic card. So these guys are pretty much traveling around, killing everybody. Um, his closest confidants are, uh, you know, uh, like I said, uh, Bugsy Goldstein, a couple other guys, Pittsburgh Phil and uh, Bugsy being the main ones. Now they're literally going around killing a lot of people, okay? By January of 1940... 
Nobody really knew about Murder Incorporated yet. Here's an interesting fact. By January of 1940, Brooklyn alone had 200 unsolved murders. So they decided to bring in a new DA named William O'Dwyer, and uh, he brought in an assistant DA named Burton Turkus. Uh, these two guys were gung-ho, all right? W- uh, William O'Dwyer wanted to stop at nothing less than being a... Uh, uh, than being new mayor of New York City. That's what his goal was. He actually eventually did become new uh, mayor of New York, I believe. I'm not 100% on that, um, but I'm pretty sure he did. Now, Burton Turkus actually earned a nickname, uh, what was it, Mr... It wasn't Mr. Cyanide, it was something of that nature, basically because... He was sending mobsters to the freaking electric chair left and right. He was on a mission, all right? Uh, Right around January 24th of 1940, a low-level informant actually told Turkus about Rellis and Goldstein and actually implicated them in uh, about 11 murders, I believe. Now, by this point in time, by 1940, Rellis had actually been arrested 43 times Six of them, he was actually arrested for murder. I think he spent a total of two years in prison his entire life. So, obviously, he had the intimidation of the witnesses. He had very good lawyers. He had all that good stuff, you know, that you could do back in the 30s and 40s that you obviously cannot do today. Now, Rellis actually had a family. He had a wife and, I believe, two children. They lived uh, where they began in uh in in Brooklyn it's where they resided now at about this time Abe Rellis's health is actually starting to fail um some of his friends thought it might have been because of consumption Abe himself thought that he might have either lung cancer or tuberculosis because he was spitting up quite a bit of blood on an actual regular basis so uh when he found out that an informant had implicated him in all these murders and might be willing to cooperate. He actually, uh, he actually was arrested. Uh, while he was sitting in jail, he basically had some decisions to make. Now, with all these unsolved murders and the new DA and the new assistant DA, the pressure was really on to lower the heat. So, Lucky Luciano says, hey, you know, we need to get the heat off of us. You know, this is really making us look bad. We don't need this kind of attention. So, basically, a bunch of low-levels mobsters start getting straight-up murdered. Uh, Anybody that can be considered a witness or can be a corroborating witness, anything of that nature is pretty much knocked off. Now, Rellis feels the heat coming, and uh, his wife actually convinces him to start being a rat to save his own life. He has a young family. He has things to think about. Um, Like I said, his health is a little bit failing, but he still doesn't know exactly what's wrong with him. He was actually, when he was uh, incarcerated, he was in and out of the hospital every now and then. He really doesn't, like I said, he doesn't really know what's wrong with him. So his wife actually talks to him and uh, gets him to turn state's evidence. He he feared uh, that he was going to be next on the hit list, or he was going to be uh, sitting on Old Sparky, uh, the electric chair in Sing Sing, which, ironically enough, he sent seven of, seven of his closest friends to uh, with his testimony. So, 
I believe it was early March in 1940, Abe Kid Twist Rellis decides to become a rat. So while he's getting interviewed and, uh, you know, just getting questioned about various murders, he actually, once he starts talking, he does not stop for 12 days. He fills 25 stenographer books. All right, now that is a lot of information. And actually, the uh, FBI and the DA were actually surprised about how, to say this, but not very intelligent he was, but they said his memory for details that included uh, times, dates, people, and places was actually astonishing. So once he started talking, he did not stop. Now, with his original you know, 12 days of testimony just to the DEA, he actually, the the New York police and the DEA right there, actually closed the books on 80 of those 200 unsolved murders. He actually had enough information to solve 80 of those 200 murders, which is just fucking crazy, all right? That is insane. Now, a lot of you might be wondering how Kid Twist got his name. I probably should have mentioned this earlier. He was a short man. He was about 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, and about 170 pounds. He had long arms. He had short fingers, but he had really, really big hands. Now, some people say that he uh, would choke people out with his hands, and that's how he got his nickname. Some say that it, he took his nickname from a previous Jewish gangster. I think it was Kid Twist Zwerbach can't remember if that's his exact last name or not and some say it was because kid twist was his or twist was his favorite kind of candy when he was growing up nobody really knows i don't even think abrellis told anybody why but abrellis's favorite way of killing people and this is actually astonishing too he actually when he was uh giving information on all these uh murders and deaths he actually implicated he actually admitted to doing 11 of them himself and the other 70 he was either involved with or had directly heard about now his favorite method of killing people was with an ice pick now what he would do was he would shove the ice pick in the person's right ear into the brain and believe it or not 11 of these people that he admitted to killing he was actually so proficient in this method of killing people that when the autopsies were performed they were considered brain hemorrhages so a couple of these murders when the DA is sitting here interviewing this guy they're actually like well he didn't he didn't die of an you know he wasn't killed he died of a freaking brain hemorrhage well come to find out Abrellis was the brain hemorrhage he had become so proficient that even uh, autopsy could not tell that it was an ice pick getting shoved into somebody's ear which is amazing all in itself. Okay, so moving forward, uh, during all of his testimony, he actually sends six out of his seven closest friends to the electric chair. Uh, the only reason one did not get the electric chair was because he actually got a life sentence. Two of those friends actually were his lifelong childhood friends, uh, Pittsburgh Phil Strauss and uh, Bugsy Goldstein, uh, both of which... I mean, I think Bugsy's uh, last words before he got electrocuted were, I wish Abe Rellis was here so I could hold his hand. You know, another, I think uh, Pittsburgh Phil said, uh, 
you know, I'll be I'll be waiting for Relis, whether it's in hell or not. Either way, I'll definitely have a pitchfork. So, I mean, there was absolutely no love lost there. Um, so all these mobsters are either getting rubbed out by the higher ranks, and they're either getting ratted out by Relis here, who has apparently a, a fucking photo, photographic memory or something, because he literally is just filled with details. And, I mean, the evidence is just damning. Now, not only with Relis, uh, you also have to have people that can corroborate all this stuff. So he ends up getting uh, a couple guys. Uh, one is named uh, Ali Tan- Tannenbaum, and another one is named, uh, I think you pronounce it, uh, Shalem uh, Bernstein. Now, these two guys actually become corroborating witnesses, and uh, they're actually moved out of jail and uh, moved into the Half Moon Hotel in Coney Island, which at the time was made up to be like pretty much a fortress for rats, turning the state's evidence against mobsters. Now, Relis was not really a mobster per se. Like I said, Murder, Inc., which he was probably the most proficient killer in, they were independent. They had no affiliation. They worked for everybody. Anybody that would pay them was who they worked for. So there's no, you know, there was somewhat a chain of command between, you know, their their bosses, uh, Louis Buck or Lepke Buckalter and uh, Albert Anastasia. But other than that, and Anastasia was pretty much the only one who was actually a very high-ranking member of uh, Cosa Nostra, which is the uh, the mafia. Here's where we start getting into the details of Kid Twist's death. Now, on November 12th, 1941, Kid Twist was set to testify and give full testimony on Albert Anastasia being involved in murders. Now, the DA is, you know, chomping at the bit for this information because they want to put a high-ranking member, you know, in the electric chair. Lepke Buckhalter had already actually been arrested and uh, he had actually turned himself in. The uh, old J. Edgar Hoover pulled a fast one on him. He ended up turning himself in. And on Abrellis's, uh testimony to a grand jury uh, months before, he would actually be the only high-ranking member of any kind of organized crime outfit that got the electric chair. So with that, we just kind of go forward. The details of Abrellis's death are pretty shady at best okay now they had at the half moon hotel they had 18 cops and working around the clock they had six six cops on each shift they were guarded 24 hours a day um the only witnesses that i really knew about were uh bernstein tannenbaum and Rellis. and i mean this was literally a fortress they had a steel door with a little sliding you know peephole and shit to let people in you know, whatever. It literally was built for this specific purpose. It is even said that they housed the witnesses on the east end of the building facing the ocean so that snipers could not even try to assassinate them or kill them, however you want to put it. So these uh, these cops actually checked on everybody supposedly every 15 minutes, all right? And these guys, I mean... Once they got out of jail and they were making they were making these testimonies, they were pretty much 
living like fucking superstars. They could do whatever they want, all right? They were hanging out, playing cards, drinking and shit. Their wives could come see them whenever they want. Their kids could come see them. You know, that's not really the same as being in jail, but he was actually an extremely useful useful witness um, with the testimonies that he did give. Like I said, he sent six out of seven people straight to the electric chair um, because of his testimonies, and he wasn't even stopping there. Now, why he was willing to give up Albert Anastasia, I'm not really sure. I imagine it was because he uh, probably at one point feared for his life or he was trying to really get out of trouble. He was pretty much out of trouble already. He had already saved his own neck by then. But with his testimonies, information just kept going up the ladder. Now, at 7.10 a.m. on November 12, 1941, uh, one of the police officers guarding Abrellis supposedly peeked in on his room and saw that he was sleeping. Okay, that's whatever. But at 7.45 a.m., a gentleman who was actually uh, working across the street from the Half Moon Hotel actually noticed, uh, his name was uh, William Nicholson. He was uh, head of the Brooklyn Draft Board, and he was sitting at his desk. Uh, He was in the building across the street, and he uh, looked out his window, and he noticed that there was a little splash of color, okay, on the roof of the Half Moon Hotel. Now, when I say the roof, I don't actually mean the roof. Aberellis was in room 623 of the Half Moon Hotel, and what it was was the buildings were connected. It was the same building, but it was the roof of the restaurant part of the Half Moon Hotel. So it was like kind of like an adjoining building, but it was the roof of that, but then you had the uh, you know, the storied windows going up the side there. So him being on the 6th floor, if he were to fall out the window and actually hit the ground, it would have been technically, say, like the 8th floor. He uh, spotted something, you know, on on the ground of the roof of the restaurant section of the Half Moon. So he informed, uh, which, like I said, everybody knew uh, what that place was used for over there. So he informed one of the detectives. And uh, the detective comes up and, uh, you know, Flipso does a little bit of investigation. Now, he flips over the body and notices that it is Abrellis. Now, remember, this was seen at 745. By the time uh, the detective got there to investigate it, it was approximately 8 o'clock in the morning. Like I had mentioned earlier, these cops were supposed to check on these uh, government witnesses every 15 minutes. Now, that's a big span of time right there, and nobody saw anything, nobody heard anything, nothing like that, okay? There was, I mean, the six cops that were on duty were actually all uh, demoted. They were never fired. Um, We'll get into more about that in the the theory section. But basically, the details are as follows. Aberellis tied uh, a four-foot electrical cord to a nozzle on the radiator he tied two bed sheets together and supposedly was the official story at the time was that he was trying to escape he was partially dressed he had his pants his shoes his shirt was uh unbuttoned uh his hat was with him his shoes were scuffed a little bit on the ends but there's a little 
couple little weird little things about all this. Abrellis's body was 15 to 20 feet away from the actual wall of this building of the window that he fell out of or jumped out of or was pushed out of. We don't really know. He tied two bed sheets together, all right, and then a four-foot cord. All in all, Abrellis fell about five stories, okay? It was about 42 feet from his room, from his room to the roof of the hotel kitchen. Now, he landed on his spine. He landed uh, at first in the sitting position. Now, that broke his spine at the fourth and fifth vertebrae. Um, the fall also ruptured his liver, uh, his spleen, and uh, made his abdomen hemorrhage, okay? So, he's pretty much uh, filled with a lot of, lot of internal shit right about now. All of these things tied together, the bed sheets and the cord, only equal to about roughly 20 feet let's say he fell you know 40 to 50 feet the math doesn't add up for an escape attempt but we're not getting into the theories yet i'm just telling you the details on autopsy uh it was said that he actually had a couple shots of whiskey in his stomach uh and there was no bottle found in his room another couple little details of of this is Abrellis was roughly 5556, weighed 170 pounds. Now, an FBI lab actually did a test on the sheets and the cord that he tied together, and they said that it could hold no weight more than 110 pounds. So, that, and uh, they also said that the knots were so loose that they just basically pulled apart. Now, I hate giving credit where credit's due. But Abrellis was a contract killer. He was a professional hitman, okay? He knew how to tie a knot, all right? So when you're sitting here thinking about it, it's like, okay, you know. Actually, here's a good example. One of the methods of killing people back then was a very slow, painful death of hog tying. When we think about hog tying today, it's, yeah, your uh, hands are tied together behind your back. Your uh, ankles are tied together, and then those two pieces of rope are tied together, and you're, like, arched backward, okay? Back then, when Murder, Inc. was killing people this way, it was not only that, but they actually had a rope that was connected to your feet that went around your neck. So as your body is slowly trying to straighten itself out, or your muscles are can't hold itself like that anymore you are actually slowly strangling yourself to death so with that little bit of knowledge you know we would you know we'd be pretty safe to assume that Abrellis knew how to tie a knot okay he was tying people up and murdering the shit out of them for like 20 years okay I'm sure the guy knew how to tie a knot so when you know the FBI is sitting here looking at this like well you know that's kind of weird uh how how why in the hell didn't this guy even tie a tight knot if he's trying to escape out of a six-story window? Like I said, you got some of the details. Uh, he fell in the sitting position. Now, when the detective actually found him, he was face down. Okay, now, let's say you're trying to repel out of a window, you know, like you would see in a movie, trying to escape, whatnot. Even with a good running jump, First of all, with a good running jump, you're not you're not going to get 15 to 20 feet away 
from the actual wall of this building, you know, 15 to 20 feet out. You're you're talking like 10 tops. Uh, Abrellis was an extremely strong man, but he was not very athletic. He was a, you know, hardcore smoker. He was a drinker, you know, pretty much all of the above. So when we actually look at it, it's like, well, first of all, how in the hell did he even end up that far off of the wall? And second of all, how did he, if he landed in the sitting position, how did he end up laying face down when he was found unless he had some momentum or was in like a, you know, flipping type motion or a cartwheel type motion, you know, that would be associated with somebody throwing his ass out the window. And don't forget that his shoes were a little bit scuffed up, which... You know, that could be here, there, that could be a struggle in the room. There were actually no signs of a struggle in the room, all right? Um, His room was was still locked, according to the six police officers. There was a little cut on the side of his cheek, which could have been associated with, you know, nicking yourself shaving that morning, which some people would theorize, other people say it was because, you know, somebody hit him with something and before they threw him out the window... Uh, nobody's really too sure on that. With all that knowledge of his background, what he was getting ready to do, which was put a high-level, high-ranking member of the mafia, you know, in, in the electric chair, here's basically where we get to some of the theories section. So, the way I like to do uh, the theory section is usually go from least plausible to most plausible and then, uh, and that would be obviously, in my opinion, of what most likely happened. Uh, the first, the first and least plausible one would probably be um, the escape attempt. Judging by the length of the cord and the two bed sheets tied together, there is absolutely no way he would have been able to reach the ground. Now, Tannenbaum had actually stated that. Uh, Relis had $60,000 in cash that was hidden. All right, now he only had a few bucks to his name. By the time he started turning state's evidence, he literally had nothing. You know, he had his wife, his kids, that was about it. So, um, you know, the $60,000 in cash, which in 1941 is a shitload of money in cash, okay? In 1941, $60,000 equals out today to... A little over, I think it's one million six thousand dollars. So a little bit over a million dollars, you know, in cash to in today's money. Back then it was sixty grand. Now that would have gotten you far. Uh, I'm not gonna lie. But the thing about it is, is that's one person's testimony, and this person's, uh, you know, you know, testimony, you know, per se is, you know, the guy's a the guy's a rat. Okay, he's gonna say whatever. You know, he's in there trying to save his own skin. Now, it's also said that uh, Bernstein and uh, uh, Tannenbaum actually really didn't like Abe Ellis. As a matter of fact, we'll get to that in another theory. I'm getting ahead of myself here. But the escape attempt is just not plausible. And another reason is because Abe Ellis is said to have been literally scared to be out of earshot of... Uh, any FBI agent or anybody that is his bodyguard. He was scared for his life. He knew that if he was out and about, where the hell is he going to escape to? 
Okay, he is a marked man. It is said that uh, Frank Costello and uh, Lucky Luciano actually uh, uh, raised about $100,000 to have him taken out. They didn't give a shit by who. They wanted him dead because, uh, you know, Albert and they didn't want Al- Albert Anastasia going away and getting electrocuted. And actually, uh, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel was actually another person that Abe Kid Twist Rellis was trying to uh trying to give up to the feds so the the escape attempt is just not very likely going from that theory we go to the practical joke theory uh this one actually does hold a little bit of ground the fact that the practical joke comes from uh abe Ellis was a total asshole while he was in police custody as a witness for the state he was constantly playing jokes, or what he would call jokes, on the uh, the cops and the other the other witnesses. Some of the shit that he would do, he would wad up a toilet paper, wet toilet paper, throw it in the cops' faces. You know, call them ten badge cops. Um, he would play a practical joke called a uh, hot foot, in which he would put a lit match in one of the cops' shoes as they would walk into the room, and he was hiding under the table uh, by the door. And, of course, he would find this absolutely nothing but hilarious. Not so much a practical joke, but some of the other stuff that he did. He would, uh, when he was in his spouts of coughing up blood, he would spit that blood in the cop's face. Uh, He actually, at one point in time, quit showering and shaving and just basically stank. Never changed his clothes. So, you know, basically, just just being an asshole, all right? So, when we actually go to the prank theory what they say he was trying to do was swoop down like batman or something from the sixth floor into the fifth floor window which would be 523 and uh he was going to crawl into that window go into that room go out come up the stairs and surprise the cops and uh you know he would laugh his ass off and tell the cops how stupid they are and um you know he would always spot out off at the mouth about you know you guys can't hold me here i can leave anytime i want blah 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 so that would have been part of the practical joke theory two problems with this is that in 523 the window was actually locked and in uh uh, there's a museum in new york i'm not exactly sure where but they actually still have the lock on that window um because that section of Coney Island is actually extremely famous for the unsolved death of Abrellis. Going forward with that, it's kind of weird because his wife Rose Rellis uh after his death was questioned for uh I think about a day straight on what was going on. She was actually the very last person to see him alive. Um and she actually stated that it was a very plausible theory because she remembers a few years back when he actually pulled that same prank when he was hanging out at a friend named Louis Capone's house. Uh, no relation to Al Capone, by the way. Um, he had actually gotten really, really drunk and uh, tied bed sheets together, climbed out the second story window, and just proceeded to walk home. She actually remembered that, and she said, well, I could see that happening because... You know, I've seen it happen before, so that's pretty much the theory that that she uh, accepted. And uh, believe it or not, ten years later, in 1951, there was another investigation into his death, and they stated that he actually did not uh, 
die from a botched escape attempt or murder, but he actually died of, and I quote, misadventure, which would be from him trying to play a prank and it went wrong and he fell to his death. Now, even with that theory, though, you would be pretty safe to assume that the guy's going to tie some good fucking knots, alright? Because it just does not make sense that, you know, he's going to tie a bunch of shitty knots trying to swoop down to the next window. And uh, believe it or not, actually, the night before, on the night of November 11th, somebody actually did call the front desk and ask if room 523 was open or if it was uh, occupied. Which raises some questions. Now, that necessarily could have been anybody, to be honest with you. So I am kind of iffy about that theory. The next theory is suicide. Uh, Abrellis was, he was sick. Alright, he had a lot of health problems going on. He really, in all honesty, the only thing he had to live for was his wife and kids. He... You know, he had pretty much nothing. I mean, by that time he was 35 years old. All he was good at was fucking killing people. He was pretty much done for with his failing health. And uh, his, uh, it was actually reported that his wife at this point in time had actually wanted a divorce. Um, That was not very common back in those days. And they say that this kind of, kind of led him to, to take the plunge because... Uh, of the fact that she was one of the main reasons that he decided to, you know, be a rat in the first place was, you know, because of his wife and uh, young kids. You know, I could kind of see that, you know, in the actual autopsy, it was found that Abrellis did not have tuberculosis. He did not have lung cancer. All he actually had was cysts on his lungs that would pop occasionally. How much, you know medical knowledge compared to today that they had back in 1941 probably not as much you know it's obviously technological advances and all that all that good stuff but i mean it is kind of plausible but even then if he's going to commit suicide he's not going to tie a bunch of bed sheets together he's not gonna you know put on his hat he's not gonna put on some clothes And even if he did, even if he did jump out a window, he's not going to land 15 to 20 feet away, you know, trajectory as if the trajectory of the fall going forward, he's going to go straight down. He's probably going to try to take a nosedive, not land on his ass. So I pretty much throw the, the whole suicide thing out the window. Now, the most plausible theory to me and to most people is that Frank Costello... Albert Anastasia and Lucky Luciano it is said that they roughly raised a hundred thousand dollars to have him taken out now with the evidence that he was getting ready to put forward in the case he was going to put some high-ranking high-ranking mobsters uh, in the electric chair now where a lot of this comes from is when the cops the six cops were interviewed that were on that shift they at they were asked, you know, what happened in this half an hour span when you're supposed to be checking on him every 15 minutes. Literally, every cop did not know. They said, "I don't know." They some said they were taking a piss. One said he dozed off. You know, the other one said he was outside uh, guarding the front door, making his rounds. So this 
half an hour span in which he he died from the time that uh, the gentleman across the street saw his body on the roof from the last time that he was checked on at 7:10 a.m. You know, there's a half an hour span. Um, nobody could, uh, you know, there's nobody could uh, give give any reasoning for their whereabouts. Okay, so a little bit later on. After the fact, Frank Costello, who was a high-ranking level mobster, who was actually in charge of bribing cops and politicians, actually said that he raised $100,000 and paid the cops to kill Abe Ellis. Now, obviously, you can't, you know, go interview a cop from 1941 and say, hey man, listen. You know, the cops were never really investigated that hard. Like I said, they were all demoted, but none of them were actually fired. And it is worth noting that uh, one of the cops, whose name is uh, Charles Burns, was actually involved in a disappearance of a a politician back in 1930 in uh, that section of New York as well. His brother was a cab driver. His brother's name is Frank. Um, was actually the cab driver and the last person to see a gentleman named uh, Joseph Force Crater alive, who was a judge back then. So Charles Burns was, you know, kind of implicated a little bit, but nothing really serious. I tried looking up um, as many Charles Burns as I could, and as you would have it, there just happened to be three Charles Burns that were cops in New York, in that part of New York, in that period of time. So finding any information or relevance on that really didn't have that much time to dig into it, but that is worth noting. Now it's also worth noting that uh, Lucky Luciano was actually in prison when uh, Abrellis was killed. Now that, he was still calling the shots, alright, he was still the boss of bosses, okay? And he actually admitted to a uh, psychiatrist that he had paid, they raised the money, but they had actually paid the cops $50,000 to take Rellis out. As much as I hate to say it, I mean, Lucky Luciani, L- Luciano had, you know, no reason to bullshit. He was doing, at that point in time, I think he was arrested in 39 um, and literally of all the charges that they tried charging him with, the only thing that actually stuck was a prostitution charge. And uh, they gave him 20 to 50 years in prison. I mean, later he ended up working with the uh, Department of Defense and the Navy and actually uh, get it, ended up getting let out of prison, but he had to uh, defect back to Italy. But that's a whole other story. But he actually uh, told a shrink, you know, at one point in time, he's like, you know, I I did every single thing that they accused me of, but they put me in prison for the one thing that I didn't do. And that was being basically a pimp. Now, given that type of honesty, there I honestly don't think that a person like, like Luciano would have any reason to bullshit anybody about a rat, about a mafia informant. You know, over $50,000, okay? And there was another another thing, uh, like, I think it was a few days after it happened, uh, it was reported that Frank Costello, you know, came back to his mob safe house or wherever it was and had a big smile on his face and, uh, you know, basically said, hey, you know, we finally took him out. It took a lot of money, but we got the situation taken care of. 
and uh, he was pretty much all smiles after that. I personally think that's what happened because there was, I mean, there's another like off theory from that about how maybe the cops were paid just to turn their backs and then they just let the mobsters in. You know, there's another theory about how, uh, I think his name's Bernstein, uh, actually wanted to kill him too. Uh, at one point in time, Abrellis actually insulted Bernstein's wife. Bernstein was one of the other cooperating witnesses. And the next day, uh, Bernstein actually tried to uh, stab the shit out of him. So, uh, I mean, there was definitely no love lost there. But the thing about it was, was this place was built like a fortress. It was guarded 24 hours a day. Um, technically, the cops were actually supposed to watch these guys sleep, as well as check on them every 15 minutes, no matter what. So it's hard to imagine that you're going to let, you know, some mobsters in the door when literally you have all eyes on this place. Everybody knew what it was. Frank Costello, you know, had, he his job was to bribe people, you know, cops and politicians. He found out where he was. You know, I personally think that's what happened. I think uh, the cops were bribed when they can't even account for their own whereabouts uh, at the time of the murder or why he was not checked on in this half an hour to 35 minute span. I really don't think that he killed himself due to the trajectory of the fall, the way he landed, and the way he was actually found, which would be face down. I don't know. To me, it's it's pretty much open and shut case. And like I said, it's still... It still uh, taunts investigators to this day. There's actually a guy who wrote a book called Tough Jews, um, and it's about the Jewish gangsters back then. And uh, he actually had, uh, you know, been investigating a lot of big points in this case for right around 10 years. Um, And that's kind of what he came up with, and it's really hard to disagree with, given the facts. So um, if you have your own theories on this case... Please let me know. Email me at uh, mysteriouscircumstances99 at gmail.com. If you would have a listener suggestion, if there's something you would like for me to cover, I would be more than happy to do that. Uh, With that, uh, uh, oh yeah, by the way, you're going to hear a promo here on my show for the next few weeks. Some of us... uh, some of us young podcasters that don't have, you know, corporate-ran websites and talk shows on HBO and shit like that, um, we kind of have to stick together and help each other out. So what we do is this thing called cross-promoting, which uh, they play a promotion on their show for me. I play a promotion on my show for them. Uh, it helps everybody out, gain viewers and stuff like that. So you will hear some promotions on my show. Right now, I'll probably actually play it. for the good old Saturdays filled with morning cartoons and sugary cereal. How about the lazy days? Just vegging in front of the telly all afternoon. Well, I do, and that's why Saturday Morning Pajamas was created. Tune in every Wednesday and Saturday for a good old dose of nostalgia, B-movies, and the latest cinematic hits. Check us out at www.nonoms.net. That's www.nonoms.net. All right, and uh, I actually have listened to their podcast, and uh, yeah, that jacks uh, cracks me up, to be honest with you. They actually did an episode on one of my favorite movies called The Burbs. It's pretty good. I like it. 
But with all that uh, information that I just gave you, uh, you know, try to form your own theories if you want to get a hold of me. I do have a subreddit now. Uh, it is Mysterious Podcast. Uh, it's it's on Reddit, obviously, and uh, we can continue some conversations. And I would love to interact with some of you about some of these cases. I would really, really enjoy that. Um, I do this podcast because this is what I like to do, and this is what I like to talk about. I find it really interesting. And uh, if you do like the show, please be kind enough to leave a uh, a review and hopefully a good rating. You know, at the very least, a rating would be nice. Try to get the word out there. I don't know. I like doing this show, and if you like it as much as I do, then, you know, good rating and a review never hurt anybody, and you can always reach me through the email as well. I will be starting up a Facebook page here uh, fairly soon as well, so I can interact with some of the some of the listeners too. So I suppose until next time, I will see you guys uh, on the flip side. <laughs>